Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast completely dedicated to discussing hypermobility disorders, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. My name is Carrie Gabrielson, and I'm a patient living with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and related conditions. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Nia Hamm, a journalist and patient with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and other related conditions. Nia is going to be joining the podcast when she has availability, and I'm very excited to be continuing this conversation about the various perspectives on hypermobility and related conditions. Nia, hello. Hey, Carrie, and hello to all the listeners that are tuning into this podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and thank you for having me, Carrie. I'm so happy to be able to join a community of people who have similar life experiences where we can discuss our own stories, share our concerns, and obtain answers to our questions. That is really important, especially given the dire situation we're all facing as we battle the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. And today, Nia and I are going to be discussing information from the Ehlers-Danlos Society regarding the coronavirus, as well as how we are coping with the lockdown related to the coronavirus outbreak. And later in the episode, we're going to be joined by Dr. Eric Philippi of Medical Procedures of Wisconsin, which is located in Madison, Wisconsin, to talk about the current state of expert advice and how we can stay as healthy as possible. But first, let's go through information from the EDS Society about the pandemic. Nia, could you give us an overview of what the EDS Society has said about hypermobility conditions and the coronavirus? And of course, it's worth noting, again, that this is just information posted on the Ehlers-Danlos Society's website, and this does not replace information from the CDC, state and local governments, or information from your doctor. And of course, if you have specific medical questions, please call your medical provider or call for emergency assistance if warranted. Sure, Carrie. So first, we do know there there is a lot of anxiety surrounding this pandemic, and I think it's really important to point out who may fall into the high-risk groups, according to the World Health Organization, or WHO, as well as the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and other officials group, uh, and excuse me, and other official groups. So those people include the elderly, people with a pre-existing condition, or a heart condition people with high blood pressure, diabetes, the presence of an underlying lung condition, and reduced immunity, which would include medications for autoimmune diseases. So that's one thing. Secondly, for a person with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or EDS, as well as hypermobility spectrum disorders, the risk of experiencing complications from COVID-19 will depend on the nature of that person's health profile and history. The great news is that according to the Ehlers-Danlos Society, while some people may have one or more of the risks listed, generally speaking, people with EDS or HSD will not have any of those risk factors. And that's really important. Of course, other concerns for EDS or HDS patients include postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, as well as orthostatic hypotension, as well as some NSAIDs, specifically ibuprofen, renin-angiotensin, aldosterone system, or RAAS, inhibitors for blood pressure control, as well as some GI conditions, specifically the potential to spread COVID-19 through fecal matter. Thanks for sharing, Nia. Um, That's a great update. And we'll post a link to the Ehlers-Danlos Society's statement about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders and how they are affected by coronavirus in the notes for this episode. Um, And yeah, I mean, this is a very stressful time for virtually everyone in the world right now. And many patients with hypermobility disorders are facing unique concerns that are arising maybe as a, a secondary result of what's um, what's going on, more difficult access to healthcare, um, maybe more difficult access to even food or a regular schedule and routine. Um, Nia, what are you doing these days to stay sane during this time of great uncertainty? Funny you should ask, Carrie, because recently, in fact, maybe several days before we really started to see a huge increase in the number of COVID-19 cases across the U.S., I had surgery on my back for a condition called tethered cord syndrome. And that's essentially when 
some of the connective tissue in your spine and the nerve endings tether either to the cartilage in your spine or to your tailbone, and it could cause a number of complications. So I had already had this surgery scheduled well before this pandemic uh, really started to increase in great numbers across the country. However, if I'd had the surgery scheduled for maybe a week after that it was performed on my back, it might not have happened. So this was about three weeks ago. And it felt like when I went in for surgery, I was on planet Earth. And when I came out, I woke up on like Mars or Jupiter. It's just like the whole world had changed really rapidly in several days. And as a consequence of having surgery, I had no choice but to stay at home for most of this time and recover. Of course, if you have ever had surgery on your back, and particularly on your lumbar spine, which is your lower back, you know, it is very difficult to function and your mobility is really hampered. So it took a while for me to really gain enough strength to be able to walk without so much pain. And yes, there's still some pain now. However, a lot of this time, I've really just been trying to take it easy and rest. Also, you know that Carrie, she hosts this podcast. I have another podcast that I host. And anybody who really does podcasting seriously knows that it could be a full-time job in and of itself. So I also set some goals for myself in terms of reading some books. Perhaps I hadn't had the time to read uh, before I went on disability. And between podcasting and reading books and then, you know, cooking for my husband, I have been fairly busy. (laughs) Um, I don't really feel like uh, I've ever felt boredom during this time. However, it is important, especially for EDS patients, to move around. So one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing, I live um, right in back of where my house is, is a river and a park and and a bike path. So my husband and I will occasionally uh, go on the bike path and walk. When I first got out of surgery, I would use a walker and it would take really long, but it was so nice to be outside and just to get moving, get your circulation moving, get your joints and bones moving and trying to stay as active as possible. And a lot of EDS patients, they are riddled with chronic pain. So I think sometimes the more we use our body, the more our body might adjust to certain conditions that we might be experiencing. And I know for me, I really needed to strengthen the muscles in my back that I hadn't been using for a while. So walking is a great way for me to do that. And it's really nice to just kind of get outside as well and enjoy the fresh air and not be cooped up in the house you also are recycling like, you know, used oxygen, you know, if you're never opening your windows and you're inside all day. So you really do need that fresh air. You really do need that sunlight. Um, We do know that a lot of EDS patients suffer from autonomic dysfunction in one way or another. I do have that issue as well. So, you know, vitamin D is a big deficiency among a lot of us. I Definitely am deficient in vitamin D. So getting out and being in the sun is really important as well. And of course, drinking a lot of water, staying hydrated, trying not to get lazy, really about doing the daily maintenance of my body that I need to stay healthy. And for each EDS patient or somebody suffering from a hypermobility spectrum disorder, that varies. But what's really important is that you try not to get off the path of that routine. Even though you're at home and you may not be doing as much, it's really important. You know, I bought a blood pressure machine so that I can make sure I monitor my blood pressure. It's also quite, quite low if I don't do certain things to make sure it's normal. Um, So, and of course, my husband, he's been amazing making sure I do all of that and helping me recover from the surgery. Um, And like I mentioned, uh, Both Carrie and I are EDS patients with related disorders. So as it turns out, a lot of people with tethered cord syndrome, which is what my surgery was for, also suffer from EDS. There's potentially some correlation there. 
as well. So for me, it's really important. And I've always been an active person. And that's why I think EDS for some of us can be especially frustrating when we're coming from backgrounds where we're active, we're mobile, you know, we're motivated. And then one day something changes and we're no longer able to operate at the capacity we used to. So I think just for our own mental sanity, being able to have some sort of routine, making sure that we have a good balance throughout the day, especially while being inside for so much of the time, getting outdoors, moving around, staying hydrated, making sure we're taking our medicine or our supplements as if we would on any other normal given day. I think all of that is really important. And that's what I've been trying to do. Absolutely. And you made some really great points in there. I love the point that you made about movement. And that's such an important thing. I noticed that too, like the more I can stay in motion, the easier it is to maintain, but um, falling out of that pattern, you know, due to an injury or a surgery, I also feel lucky because I had a small sinus surgery on the last day um, before the elective surgeries were canceled. And thankfully I was able to, because I was so miserable. It was so infected for so long. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, those, those little disturbances can really throw us off track. And in a way this, this virus is kind of a, you know, a massive throwing everyone off track in that way. And so the more we can, um, you know, stick to our routines and try to focus, like you said, on what we can do to just kind of better ourselves in the moment, um, the better it is, but it is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, a lot of us are kind of isolated due to our circumstances as it is. And obviously the circumstance makes it um, even more extreme. Um, and so, yeah, finding those ways to build connections and build routines, even with ourselves, um, can be incredibly useful. And uh, I love what you said about movement because uh, it reminds me, and I should mention that um, Jeannie Devon, who's, who was previously a guest on the podcast and did a great breathing um, exercise for us, which I highly recommend and I use periodically. Um, if you want to go back and check that out, um, she's actually making her movement course for patients with hypermobility available for free online during this um, pandemic. So we'll include a link in the notes for the episode. And she also has some content available on YouTube. And you can head over to her website, geniedevon.com. Um, and see the great resources she has there. Um, I, I personally have found her program really helpful because it can be really, although we crave movement and you know our muscles really need that, a lot of us um, really struggle to find movement that's healthy for us. So um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those very important things to focus on during this time. And Carrie, you mentioned, you mentioned a lot of EDS patients already being isolated before the pandemic. And I know you've experienced a little bit of that as well. How have you been coping? Um, good question. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult. I mean, I, I had to leave work in early 2018. So it's been about two, well, now over two years of being mostly um, at home for me. Um, obviously, way more home these days than um, than previously, but it's really difficult um, being, you know, kind of away from human contact in general. And I'm trying to, you know, call friends, FaceTime when I can to, um, you know, at least get to see and, and talk to people. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to focus on what I'm going to do after this, focus on the future, focus on, like you said, eating well, um, you know, trying to move, um, catch up on paperwork that's been piling up for too long. Um, definitely listening to a lot of podcasts. And uh, this is a good time to also mention, uh, Nia has a fantastic podcast if you want something unrelated to hypermobility to check out. Um, it is called Black Wall Street 1921. Um, and I highly recommend that if you, um, are so inclined. Um, and another podcast I'm really loving these days is the happiness lab, um, which is from a Yale professor awesome. a course that was extremely popular on, yeah. um, happiness and how to essentially live our, our best lives. And she has some great episodes recently that are specifically about how to stay connected when we're 
literally very disconnected when we're, we're keeping apart. So um, those I have found um, really useful. And I've been trying to check out some of these webinars. There's been some great uh, materials posted um, from you know various organizations, but uh, recently the Mastocytosis Society did uh, a webinar on biofeedback basics for stress and anxiety, um, and they said that would be posted for future viewing. So it can be a good time maybe to you know check out the various resources for our different conditions and see what kind of materials they're posting. I know the Ehlers Danlos Society also has been doing. Um, you know, sessions for people to be able to talk and relate and uh, as well as informational, like educational um, content that they're always putting out as well. So that might be something to check out as well. Kiri, can we just really t- quickly talk about food? Cause you mentioned eating well, and I think Absolutely. that is such an important part of making sure that EDS patients are just maintaining good health, but then also improving. So what are some of the things that you've been eating during this time? I think it can be a little tempting to perhaps indulge in things that we wouldn't normally indulge in. (laughs) So how have you been dealing with that? Absolutely. Yes. And everyone I've been talking to has been saying how, well, almost everyone, I have one friend who doesn't feel the need to eat all the time. And I'm very jealous of her. But most of the people I've been talking to have really been struggling with this kind of boredom eating and eating comfort food. And, you know, for a lot of us who have Ehlers-Danlos and related, especially GI symptoms, but mast cell symptoms or, you know, any number of other things, a lot of those comfort foods can be really super irritating and can kind of throw us off balance. So I've been trying to, um, I, I, I ordered some of these um, like prepackaged vegetable meals um, so I wouldn't be tempted. And I've been trying to stick towards having really high veggie protein um, and then get some good fats in these like prepackaged meals. Um but they're super expensive. So I'm not going to be doing that forever. I'm going to have to be getting to the bottom of my freezer bin pretty soon. But yeah, definitely so important to focus on, you know, eating as healthy as we can and kind of thinking of the longer game, because that temptation to eat sweets and, you know, really unhealthy stuff, I think when we're bored, and when we're disconnected is is even stronger. But but what about you? How are you um, uh, managing with the the coronavirus situation. How's your diet these days? <laughs> the coronavirus diet. Yeah. Um, good question. So I definitely, since I really noticed a, a downturn in my health, which started over five years ago, I quickly sought the expert advice of nutritionists and doctors who specialize in these areas and I've been doing very well with trying to make, in fact, I've done a number of different diets. I've done the pot, uh, FODMAP diet. I've done the paleo diet. I've done the whole food plant-based diet. And a lot of it really requires cutting out a lot of sugar, processed sugar, which comes in so many of the foods we eat, which by the way, are not real food anyway. A lot of that involves making sure I'm trying to get my my food mostly from whole food sources. So like you mentioned, the vegetables, the, the plants, um, also making sure if I'm having protein, I source it well. So if I'm buying fish, trying to make sure that I buy uh, uh, wild caught fish as opposed to you know fresh um, and harvested fish and that really helps. A lot of times, if it's not wild caught, then some of the things that different, um, I guess, purveyors of the fish industry put in what they feed their fish could be harmful to the health of anybody, and including and especially EDS patients. And so that's been helpful. Also making sure that I don't deprive myself because that's something that really also I feel like is ineffective. I think we need to have a balance in whatever we do. And I don't think being on either extreme of the spectrum is helpful. So what I've been doing is giving myself allowances. I started after a few years allowing myself to go a little more crazy during the holidays. I don't eat 
uh, lactose and I don't eat gluten. So I've already canceled out a lot of food options. So it's important for me to give myself something to feel like I'm not completely depriving myself. So in order to do that, I may get a gluten-free, dairy-free snack, or I may eat goat's milk cheese as opposed to real lactose every once in a while, reminding myself that dairy could be a huge source of inflammation. Sugar, also another huge source of inflammation. So instead of buying a lot of processed foods, I make sure I look at the ingredients on about everything I buy. And I make sure I look at it, especially how much added sugar is in it. And if it looks like a ton, I won't buy it at all. And sometimes I try to go for things that don't have any added sugar. But if I'm feeling like I want to reward myself, I may get something that's gluten-free. It may have a little bit of added sugar, but not a lot because sugar is also a huge source of inflammation and it can lead to a lot of diseases of course, cancer being one of them, but it can also be harmful for the health of a lot of EDS patients as well. Those are some great points to make. I I also, I completely noticed the less sugar I eat, the better I feel. And as soon as I broke down last week, I was stressed and I ate some candies and I immediately got a breakout from it. (laughs) So I, I totally see that connection now in my skin, in my body. And, you know, if that's what we see on the outside, it's like, it's gotta be worse on the inside, but it can be so hard because those foods are so comforting. So I too, I try really hard to, you know, go with fruit instead of just the pure sugar snacks. But yeah, with this level of stress and uncertainty, it definitely it's and that's why it's good that you said, you know, it's good to keep things in moderation too, because the more we try to just eat our, you know, vegetables and stuff, that's not quite as exciting. I think the more we're setting ourselves up for, you know, the bigger sugar crash later. So yes, exactly. And I'm really passionate about food because this is where we get most of our nutrients from. And we have to be very mindful that a lot of what we're putting into our bodies are chemicals. They're man-made chemicals that just did not exist, you know, decades ago. And our bodies I think and a lot of researchers and people who work in this area believe that our bodies were not made to be processing all of these chemicals and things that are not naturally occurring in nature at such a high level. And so when we look at some of the problems we have, we also have to look at how we're treating our bodies. And I think food is has a lot to do with how we treat our bodies. Definitely. And it's kind of one of the basic building blocks. It's, yeah, it's our fuel, what we run on, and we're kind of at the mercy of, of that at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it's incredible. So don't, don't eat your feelings <laughs> during the quarantine. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it's it's a good goal, definitely. Um, and yeah, I thought um, uh, it also might be worth mentioning some kind of free resources that um, people can go to if they are getting bored, if they are in danger of that um, boredom eating. Um, My local library uses the Libby app, um, but I know a lot of uh, local libraries have now their significant portion of their catalogs online. So maybe it's a good time to sign up and get a library card. You can watch movies. There are audiobooks, um, which I really love from my local library um, that I've been checking out. And um, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure a lot of people are watching a lot of YouTube these days, but a really great free series um, that's educational as well is the Crash Course series. Um, they have great series on chemistry, biology, history, um, lots of different topics. And there's some great anatomy and biology ones that um, have been useful for me in kind of understanding in a, in a basic kind of way um, more about how the body works. Um, what about you, Nia? What are you using to entertain yourself these days? <laughs> so a number of different things. I have definitely been trying to read more, like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, trying to work through some of my to-do list books, and that has been taking up a good portion of my time. Me and my husband, we try to make it a point because both of us, we keep ourselves busy during the day 
and he's working from home and I'm working on other things. And so we try to make dinner time our us time and we kind of use that as our entertainment time. So we may watch a movie together. We may watch a Netflix show together. I have been up until the shelter in place <laughs> that we're all experiencing. I was really good about limiting the amount of television that I watch every day to no more than an hour. And really in the last several months, I would say I would watch maybe a half an hour if that. I don't even watch television every day. But boy, <laughs> that's another vice that can be, you know, um, that can sneak up on you. So I definitely find myself staying up later into the night and watching shows, like sometimes binging with my husband and then going to bed really late. So now I'm trying to get myself out of the habit of that. So also, like I mentioned, we will take walks and my husband loves nature. So, you know, we'll go to the river and and he'll give me all kind of useless facts about animals that I'll never use and just things like that. And also reconnecting with friends. Like for me, that's entertainment. I've been doing a lot more talking on the phone with people. I mean, I know it sounds crazy because people mostly text message these days, but picking up the phone and calling a friend, calling a family member, checking in with them, seeing how they're doing. And I've also planned to host and or rather to help host some Zoom parties uh, for my friends and I. So we'll get together. We may have tea or drinks and we'll have like a whole Zoom chat open. And that's a really great way to connect as well. So there's so many creative things and we're lucky that at least if we have to go through what we're going through, we live in a digital age where we have technology to assist us in staying connected. Definitely. And um, there are some great free online games that you can play um, over video chat with friends. Um, there's one called Fibbage. It's through a service. I think it's called Jackbox TV. Um, and so, and there are different, um, you know, games and stuff that you can do with, um, with people uh, to mix it up, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It is, it's kind of a good opportunity for, uh, for many of us, um, you know, to, to reconnect and, and call, um, call people when maybe we've just been kind of texting in the past or have had, you know, email exchanges. It's, um, a good opportunity for so many of us. Um, and, and that just reminds me of all the essential workers too, who are, you know, having to go into work every day and, um, kind of are having a different experience. There's kind of two camps, um, it seems of the experience and it's a good, um, time to say th thank you out there to anyone, um, who is an essential worker, um, or, you know, family or supporting, um, essential workers during this time, um, because it's incredibly, difficult for, you know, for us, some of us managing the, the boredom and kind of the lack of connection. But certainly there's a lot of us out there who are overwhelmed and, you know, in a very uh, difficult situation. So Carrie, can I just mention one other thing I forgot? I'm also really proud of the fact that my husband taught me how to play chess <laughs> um, during this whole shelter in place. And I uh, feel like I've done really well. We had a stalemate, like the second game we played, which I felt like was a good sign. So wow. um, yeah. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned that website about, you know, games. And so while you can play games online, it's also a great time to like play games in person too. I think we bought mm -hmm. Uno cards, we played chess. So those are some of the other things we've been doing. Absolutely. Definitely. Now we're joined by Dr. Eric Philippi to talk about the current guidelines on the coronavirus and some of the emerging science related to the disease. Dr. Philippi was a resident in family medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he served as chief resident for the program from 2016 to 2017. During his residency, Dr. Philippi sought out additional training specific to office-based surgical procedures. Following residency, he was also an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In this role, he provided a wide spectrum of patient care with an emphasis on procedural medicine, and he was involved in medical student instruction and coaching at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Philippi's clinic, Medical Procedures of Wisconsin, offers a variety of services that may be of interest to patients with hypermobility disorders, including prolotherapy and platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, therapy. 
The clinic is currently open as of the date of this interview and has taken measures to comply with social distancing, uh, i.e. only one patient is allowed in the office at a time, and he takes the temperatures of every person coming to his office for treatment. Dr. Philippi's professional interests include procedural medicine, global health, emergency and urgent care, physician well-being, and medical technology integration. Dr. Philippi, hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Dr. Philippi, can I just ask you really quickly before we jump in, can you just explain how your procedures and what you do are unique and beneficial for patients with EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorders? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, as you're aware with hypermobility spectrum disorders, um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we uh, know that connective tissue is lax or is not as robust as um, it may otherwise be, leading to frequent injuries, typically musculoskeletal type injuries. Um, one of the types of therapies that I perform is prolotherapy, which um, means proliferative therapy. And basically, at a 30,000 foot view, it is causing a simulated injury at a site of ligamentous laxity to trigger the body's own immune response to heal a degenerated ligament, tighten that ligament, and restore normal joint function that was lost when a ligament got stretched out from injury. Cool. All right. So let's start with the basics. Obviously, we are talking about COVID-19 and uh, the virus that causes coronavirus. So can you just tell us how the virus is transmitted firstly? Absolutely. So the coronavirus um, from this pandemic is SARS-CoV-2, and uh, it's a coronavirus. It's a virus similar to viruses that normally cause the common cold. In fact, um, from where I'm from in Wisconsin, we have lots of coronaviruses every season. Every cold season, there are a few strains going around. This one transmits very similar to the common cold, very similar to influenza or the SARS uh, outbreak that happened in Asia. It's basically respiratory droplets. So coughing, sneezing, um, brings about a whole lot of saliva that comes out of the mouth and nose. And I'm sure most people have seen one of those slow motion sneezes or coughs on, uh, on video where you see all of these droplets of saliva coming out. Those droplets are filled with cold viruses, or in this case, the coronavirus. And typically those go about three to six feet in distance and slowly drop to the ground or whatever surface is underneath. And then when those droplets go from one person who is sick with coronavirus to someone who is not sick with coronavirus, that's how someone can, can get it. That's how the infection spreads. And what groups are most at risk? And what are the key things to do to protect those people in the at-risk categories? That's a great question. Yeah. Who should we be most concerned for? Or if we are one of them, who, who uh, what should our level of concern be in this pandemic? Well, I think the thing we're learning as we see this infection spread is, I wouldn't say that anyone in particular is safe. We initially thought that based on the data we were seeing from China, that it was only really worrisome for elderly people. Um, that's just not been the case in both Europe and in the U.S. And we're not sure exactly why that is, but I, I would say a summary statement is everybody is at risk. There have been um, plenty of hospitalizations in groups between the age of 20 and 40 years old, as well as 40 to 65 and over 65. But to your question, who's at the greatest risk? Very similar to pretty much any infection, it's older adults and anyone with a severe underlying disease. So older adults, anyone over the age of 65, um, and especially older adults who are in nursing facilities, are at probably the highest risk of both getting the infection as well as having a very severe illness because of the infection. 
Um, and then anyone with a severe underlying disease, in particular for coronavirus or COVID-19, um, people with asthma, um, people with uh, hypertension or high blood pressure that's uncontrolled, uh, as well as diabetes, seem to be some of the hardest hit with the illness. Um, but, uh, you know, other potential uh, diseases that can make you more at risk would be something like HIV. Um, obesity has been shown to be a risk factor for patients um, requiring intubation and then uh, unfortunately failing the efforts after intubation. And, and then pregnancy. Pregnancy is a state where um, a woman's body is relatively immunocompromised we think partly to not have your immune system fight the baby that you're growing inside. Um, and so the risk of getting an infection and the risk of having a pretty significant illness is is high in pregnancy. You know, not to mention that currently different obstetric wards are imposing some probably pretty smart restrictions in terms of who can be around for the delivery. Um, you know, I have delivered a lot of babies in my time as a doctor. And sometimes we have whole families in the room for the delivery. And I mean, 10 to 15 people in the room just cheering on this delivery. <laughs> Those are magical moments, no doubt. Uh, that would not be a good thing to have right now because um, it increases the risk for everyone involved having you know people gather like that. But the restrictions even in some hospitals are that the partner the father can't be in the room at the same time um, for delivery. And um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said kind of just socially, policy-wise about um, restrictions related to this outbreak. But um, one in particular, and it's on my mind, my, my wife is 33 weeks pregnant right now, so we're going to be having a baby here in the next month and a half. And so um, keeping up to date on what our local hospital restrictions are when it comes to who can be in the room is something that I'm uh, keeping very close tabs on. That's really interesting. I've been seeing a lot more lately about mothers having to deliver by themselves, which looks horribly depressing. I don't know. I think I might throw a fit if somebody made me deliver by myself. I had surgery. This is Nia, by the way. <laughs> I had surgery several weeks ago on my spine for a related condition. And I couldn't have my husband or my mom with me for the majority of the time I was there. And it was really just not a good feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, other things just related to being in the hospital right now, you know, that um, uh, very similar to your experience of limiting visitors, limiting support people, even people in the ICU on a ventilator, um, maybe even um, experiencing their last uh, days uh, alive, are not allowed to have visitors. Um, a number of my colleagues who are ICU doctors, um, you know, describe that. Uh, unfortunately, um, while a number of patients have passed away from coronavirus infection, their family members are at home, and they um, and that's you know. Um, all sorts of these um, kind of unbelievable sacrifices are being made right now in, in the realm of this pandemic. So recently, the CDC changed its recommendations for the general public in terms of wearing masks. So my question for you is, why the change? Why now? And then what kind of masks are sufficient for general use among the public? That's a great question. Um, so I, I would say the first thing about masks is I, I agree with the recommendation of the CDC. Um, why why masks? Well, it, it's sort of a um, it's not you, it's me type of phenomenon. Um, it's not necessarily to protect ourselves, though it does protect ourselves. It's this idea that we can be asymptomatic and still have the infection and still have a potential of spreading the infection to others. And the idea of having someone wear a mask is to protect everyone else from any sort of respiratory droplets that they might be spreading. So thinking about that, um, 
thinking about that image of someone sneezing slow motion, um, if their mouth was covered, all of those droplets don't go three to six feet in front of them and all around. Um, they just stay inside of that mask. And that's, I, I think I should have said earlier with transmission, it's not just coughing and sneezing because, you know, that old saying, say it, don't spray it. Uh, unfortunately, all of us spray it regardless of how much we think we might not, there are even imperceptible little droplets that come out as we speak. And those can potentially spread the infection. So the idea of wearing a mask is mainly to protect others from us, because we don't know if we have the infection or not, because there's a fairly significant portion of people who are just asymptomatic carriers that can still spread the infection. Um, I guess one other thought about that is it, we have seen now more data. We're tracking how many infections happen in, in all of the countries where this pandemic is. And some of the countries that have done the best have had nearly everyone out in public wearing masks. And those countries are South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong. Um, they, uh, one of the many factors as to why their uh, spread or their um, epidemic or their pandemic in their country has not been as bad, one of them is likely that they're all wearing masks. Um, another reason to wear a mask would be to protect yourself from yourself. So one of the ways that we can get this infection is by touching a surface that someone has deposited their respiratory droplets on that, you know, sneezed around, coughed around, or even just talked around. We touch it and then we touch our face. There was an interesting study done of medical students who were sitting in lecture and they video recorded the lecture and then they counted how many times these students touched their face. And I think, I don't know the exact number, but it was right around 20 times per hour. And maybe medical students are just, in general, um, fidgety and uh, nervous people. But I don't think that's the case. I think most humans touch their faces quite often. And so a mask is a barrier between your hand and your nose or mouth. It's also just a reminder don't you know to not touch your face so that could be another reason why mask wearing could help with the um, reducing the spread um, why now I, I think there's probably two good reasons for why now um, one of them is early on we as a country were so poorly prepared for a respiratory pandemic that our hospital systems, didn't have enough personal protective equipment or PPE, and that includes masks. And so it, I think, was a strategic um, suggestion or not a suggestion anyways of the CDC and the World Health Organization to have masks on everyone because they wanted to save enough personal protective equipment for the frontline healthcare workers who are at the highest risk of getting the infection, as well as, um, turns out, in most countries are at the highest risk of having significant illness because of the infection. And probably the other reason is we just saw enough data from other countries who did have masks um, recommended that we saw that they were doing so much better than our country was, and, and we made the suggestion. You asked the other question of what kind of mask? Well, I'll tell you for sure, it's nearly impossible at this point to get any N95 masks or surgical um, face masks, um, but they're not needed. There, there are a number of tutorials on YouTube or on Facebook that you can find of how to sew your own mask. And, um, and there's some nice charts that I ran across. I, I don't know if I have a reference for those that show how protective are different fabrics. And what it comes down to is there's um, the tighter woven the fabric is, likely the better it's going to protect droplets from going through. 
um, but also the tighter woven, it can be um, more restrictive in terms of just your breathing and your comfort. So some balance of the two is probably where you want to where you want to sit. And um, and if you are not good at sewing, uh, I think that there's a lot of folks who are sitting at home right now, probably some of which are really good at sewing and just want to help. So if you've got a friend who ever makes anything with fabric, this might be the right time to, you know, send them a nice uh, postcard and say, hey, any chance you can send me a mask? <laughs> um, I, I know I have a few family members who've been offering and uh, it's really kind. I've got enough surgical masks in my clinic um, to last me through this. So uh, I've told them, send them to other people, please. That's really helpful. Thanks. And yeah, I think for a lot of us, it's difficult to adjust to this transition because we're certainly not used to wearing masks around other people. And it feels a bit strange to be speaking to someone and obscuring your mouth. Like there's just something kind of odd about that, but it's good to get that um, extra detail about why it's important and how it's a it's a good idea to hopefully cut this situation as short as possible. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the best ways for us to maintain our immune systems during this time? Mm. Yeah, yeah, because if your immune system was robust enough to fight it off, maybe you wouldn't get as sick. It, and um, I think that's the best thing we can do short of our uh, social distancing, our awareness of how the infection is transmitted is, yeah, do be active in our, um, in our own health. Uh, you know, the, there was a study, I think it's in the archives of internal medicine. They studied a group of 23,000 people to say, how do we avoid chronic illness, uh, infections, disease, like what, what is the way that large groups of people when they're studied, what things show or what things cause someone to be healthier? And they're probably not surprising to you. Um, there were four main things that the study concluded, one of which was uh, don't smoke. So if there was ever a time in uh, you, your life to, to um to have a really good reason to not smoke. It might be now uh, with a deadly respiratory virus that mainly infects the lungs going around. This um, Quitting smoking is probably one of the hardest things that a human can do uh, in terms of infection, or in, not infection, addiction-wise. Um, and this might just be the, the best impetus to do that, I guess. Um, and if you're not a smoker, this would not be a good time to start. Um, another thing that the study concluded was exercising three and a half hours a week helps to boost the immune system. Um, that exercise can be as, you know, just, just light aerobic jogging, um, can be really anything that didn't specify just exercise three and a half hours a week. Um, healthy eating, healthy eating, a, a, a diet, which is, um, contains fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts seeds, and generally low meat consumption were, were, the, were the tenets of healthy living that were found in this study. So eat healthy, exercise, don't smoke, and then maintain a healthy weight. So the, the patients who had BMIs less than 30 were uh, more likely to avoid infections and uh, chronic illness. So those are some basic, um, albeit, you know, big life modifications to to maintain a healthy immune system. Other things, getting adequate sleep. Adequate sleep is different for different people. Some people thrive on six hours of sleep. I wish I were one of them. Um, my, my ideal is probably closer to eight hours. And I, I have friends who are up in the 10 hours of sleep before they're actually rested on a consistent basis. But getting that amount of sleep is a really good thing to um, boost your immune system. We know that sleep deprivation increases our risk of getting infections. Um, staying hydrated is a great way to keep your immune system healthy. Ideally, somewhere between two and three liters of water or two to three Nalgene's full of water per day is what most people need to stay hydrated, depending on your activity level. Um, 
And, you know, a lot of this is dietary. A lot of this is um, kind of more habit um, related. There, there are some people who just can't get great nutrition um, with, um, you know, because of digestive issues. And so sometimes when someone can't maintain uh, adequate um, dietary intake to stay healthy, we do suggest certain immune boosting IV therapies. There are um, some out there with a, a mixture of different vitamins that we can give by IV and in fluid, which is both nutrition and hydration in one, and that can boost immune function as well. Great. Um, so are there any other medications that we should be concerned about taking at this time that may uh, have adverse outcomes due to complications with COVID-19? Ibuprofen comes to mind. Even my doctor told me not to take that. There's some you know, research showing that that could be problematic and worsen a person's case of COVID-19. Yeah. You're right on. You're right on. Ibuprofen seems to be the only med that we know that might worsen the infection. Um, there, there are other meds. I'll, I'll talk about those. Um, there are other meds that we know in general will decrease immune function. Uh, that would be something like chronic use of a steroid medication like prednisone. Um, but uh, and there are some that are designed to decrease immune function for treatment of disease, and uh, those typically are related to well, I would say at this point, having uncontrolled chronic disease is probably worse than um, stopping a medication to prevent COVID infection from getting bad. That would be, I'm not your doctor, but as a general advice of a doctor, uh, I, I wouldn't suggest stopping any chronic medications that you have. Um, but ibuprofen, why is ibuprofen a big deal? Well, ibuprofen seems to increase the number of receptors in our body that the virus binds to. There's a, this is going to get a little nerdy and I don't know if that's okay, but um, there's a receptor called the ACE. Two receptor and it's on the lining of our lungs, which is where this infection takes hold. And it's the ACE2 receptor that the virus seems to bind to in order to infect a cell in our body. And there seems also to be a tendency for ibuprofen in particular to increase the number of ACE2 receptors that show up on our cells. And so we haven't seen with any data that ibuprofen users have worse illnesses. So this is not data-driven. This is theory-driven. Um, but we do know that ibuprofen increases ACE2 receptors in the lungs. ACE2 receptors are what the virus binds to and theoretically could worsen the outcome. In general, ibuprofen is used to decrease fevers, to decrease pain, decrease inflammation. Um, Tylenol works to decrease fevers, decrease pain, does not do anything for inflammation. If you are really uncomfortable because of a fever, you might consider just taking kind of like a lukewarm bath, uh, see if that gets you through a peak of a fever or, um, you know, ice packs, um, change the temperature in your, in your home, um, or try Tylenol. I think our body has a, a fever response to infection actually as a protective mechanism because the virus doesn't replicate as well at warmer temperatures than normal body temperature. And so fever is actually probably a bit protective. And if you can manage and you're not too uncomfortable, I wouldn't necessarily recommend using any of those medications um, just to reduce the fever. But if you're having trouble sleeping or you know, uh, something like that. Yeah, I would recommend Tylenol over ibuprofen until COVID is less of a concern. That makes a lot of sense. And that's very interesting about those receptors. So hopefully with this virus, we'll end up learning a lot more about how the immune system works and how to keep it functioning um, in normal conditions as well. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about the mental health implications of this crisis. 
Could you talk a little bit about this issue and give us your thoughts about how we can stay connected and as healthy as possible during this very difficult time? Carrie, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think at the beginning of this pandemic, it probably wasn't a question people were asking because we had no idea how long we'd be isolated for. You know, in certain states, we probably were looking at other states making this shelter-in-place order and thought, oh, well, hopefully that doesn't happen here. And now it's happened, and it's pretty much everywhere that we're doing this social distancing thing. You mentioned, how do we stay connected? I think that's actually the key to a lot of mental health um, concerns. You, you know, we, I think we're designed to be in community. I think we, I, I think even even the most introverted among us still has a, um, uh, a need to be uh, with or at least in community of some sort with people. And now that we are socially distanced, I think it's, ever more important that we try to maintain our connection to community. One of those ways is just to strike up a conversation not in person. Pick up the phone. Um, boy, there's a lot of Gen Z uh, or I generation, uh, you know, the folks between the ages of, what is it, like 18 and 25 right now or something like that. Um, phone conversations are not the norm for them. <laughs> you know, text conversations are the norm. And I guess you can do that without spreading infection. But, um, you know, uh, to increase that that social connection, phone calls, write letters, you know, pick up that, that old uh, um, nice connection with uh, writing letters to people. Um, don't sneeze or cough on, on the letters before you send them. Um, connect online you know, Zoom calls. Just last night, my family got together on a go-to meeting or a Google Hangout. I forget which it was, but we, you know, the the eight of us were on there and having a great time just seeing each other's faces and just catching up. Um, or just talk to yourself. You know, actually, that might be an introvert's dream is to just talk to yourself. And I'm serious about that. Journal, um, pray, meditate, what, whatever it is that you do, um, or, or just speak out loud and uh, talk about how you're feeling. I think that's a, a, a key to, to um, just understanding wh where that stress or anxiety or depression is coming from is, is talking it out, writing it out. Um, uh, be in nature. That would be that would be a great thing. Maintain distance from whoever's hiking in front of you or, or behind you, but be, you know, go out to your local park. I think that the state of Wisconsin um, opened up all of the state parks without any fees. So um, you can go enjoy nature. And this isolation is not necessarily a stay indoors. It's just a stay a healthy distance from other people. Um, and, you know, I, I, have a, I have a therapist who sees patients in my office. And right now she's not seeing any of her clients in person, but she's seeing all of her clients over, um, you know, a healthcare specific um, online video chat. And um, she, as I've talked with her, has, has said she's really surprised at just how well that medium works right now for her and her clients. So if you have someone who's helping you with your um, anxiety, depression, any sort of issues um, related to your mental health, you likely still can be engaging with that with that provider during this time. I really love that advice. So finally, can you tell us how, if at all, do you see us returning to normal after this crisis sort of subsides? And then what does that even look like? <laughs> that is a great question. I, um, what I've been telling patients, what I've been telling my friends and family in Wisconsin in particular is I'm really looking forward to June. I think that, you know, the, um, it's likely that the peak of our cases, um, like new cases per day are going to peak across the country sometime between, um, now or even in the next week or so and through probably the first week in May, somewhere in, in the next three weeks. Um, after that, we're 
likely once the number of new cases peak, we're going to still see increased hospitalizations, increased death rate, and that's expected, unfortunate, but expected over a week or so following the peak of new cases. And the likely return to some semblance of normal or reducing the restrictions of the stay-at-home or shelter-in-place orders are probably going to come about two weeks after we see the peak in our new cases. And when the number of new cases gets to a point where public health departments have the ability, both in number of staff, number of tests available, and, and resources to identify new cases and be able to track and contact all of their recent contacts. That's, that's our public health measure of controlling an outbreak when it's in its infancy, is you identify who has it, who they've had, and we can do very targeted and selected isolations for those people. And, um, and once we can get back to that point, which is probably about two to three weeks after the peak, um, where we can then allow the general public to meet in groups of 10 again, or then, you know, after a little while, groups of 50. Um, and that's a numbers game. That's just a stats game of saying, okay, if there are 50 people gathered, what is the risk that one of those people is an asymptomatic spreader? Um, I, th- I, I fully anticipate that, you know, a month from now, two months from now, Someone who's out in public with a cough, who looks sick, who's sneezing a lot, I mean, they're going to become a social pariah unlike they've ever been before. You know, three months ago, someone was out in public coughing, sneezing. Yeah, people are probably going to keep their distance. But no one would likely go up to them and say, hey, you should be at home. You are putting a bunch of people at risk. But I think that's going to probably be a new norm worldwide going forward that, um, you know, Someone shows up sick to work and they're going to get more than just told to go home. I think their employer is going to probably send them a strongly worded something. Um, I think there's going to be a better social awareness of how disease spreads and how respiratory viruses spread. The, I think the process is going to be slow. I think it's going to be slow to get back to normal, you know, some things like just normal social graces of shaking someone's hand. That's going to probably feel pretty strange the first time you do that a month or two from now. Um, you know, social hugs among friends, is that going to be okay? I don't know. These are really good questions. I know Dr. Fauci, um, really the face of the um, medical community in this pandemic in the U.S., he kind of half-heartedly mentioned and then in a follow-up interview confirmed he thought it'd be great if we got rid of handshakes altogether because that's a huge transmission point for illness. Um, is that really possible? Probably not. Um, but, uh, yeah, what is that new normal going to look like? Are we going to have an NFL season this next fall? Are, you know, universities going to have, in-person classes of more than 100 students in a lecture hall at a time without, you know, two feet in between students? I I don't know. These are really good questions. I think um, we will get to watch a few countries do it before us. Uh, As long as these countries are sharing accurate information, um, which is just the right thing to do for humanity right now, we're going to get to watch some of these efforts of returning to normal happen in Europe, happen in Asia, before we will be ready for it, and we'll get to learn something. But um, yeah, I think that there will be certainly a new norm um, for a little while. And and the silver lining of all of this, uh, I hope, is that we we do understand a bit more about how illness is spread, how we can keep ourselves healthy, because even though it doesn't bother someone who's in their 20s, 30s, or 40s if they get the common cold for a couple days, or uh, even influenza for many people, it is a deadly illness for many. And if we had better social awareness of how not to spread these type of illnesses, I think it can have a profound effect in terms of just overall public health. 
That's a great perspective. And I really appreciate that silver lining. Um, you know, the, the podcast is called the Hypermobility Happy Hour because we like to focus on what we can do and what the positives are um, in the situation. And so I think that's a really um, important point to make. And yeah, hopefully this will be an opportunity for us as as humanity to work on some of these big questions. But it's definitely a an interesting time to be alive and um, things are changing pretty rapidly. So that's both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Well, this was a great discussion. Thanks so much to Dr. Philippi for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time on the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Bye. See ya. See ya.